0: I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We're in Numbers 33, 1 through 15 today. This is entitled, The Journeys of Israel, Part 1. It's from Egypt to Sinai. Really great pictures of Christ in this, by the way. Verse uh, 1, these are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting points. They departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. <clears throat> on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also, on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. Then the children of Israel moved from Ramses and camped at Sukkot. They departed from Sukkot and camped at Etam, which is on the edge of the wilderness. They moved from Etam and turned back to Pi Hahiro, which is east of Baal Zephon, and they camped near Migdol. They departed from before Hahiro and passed through the midst of the sea, woohoo, into the wilderness, went three days' journey into the wilderness of Etam and camped at Mara. They moved from Mara and came to Elim. At Elim were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there. They moved from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. They moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dofkah. They departed from Dofkah and camped at Elush. They moved from Elush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. They departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. I didn't mean to get excited there, but I can't help it. I'm reading that and thinking about how marvelous it is what God did for them by leading them through the sea, and it just kind of came out. In a Bible study some time ago, Mr. Magnuson pulled out a rather appropriate quote for the content of today's verses. He said, the only freedom each of us possesses is the freedom to choose who or what we will be a slave to. I didn't ask if that was his quote or if he was citing someone else but no matter which it is reflected in the March of Israel from Egypt to Canaan the idea of slavery is something that we find rather abhorrent but it is actually something that we will all face Israel was enslaved in Egypt that picture being a slave to sin but it is by law that comes the knowledge of sin Paul tells us that explicitly in Romans 3 verse 20 if there is no law There is no transgression. That's obvious on the surface. It is true that any one of Israel could have stayed in Egypt. That was their choice to leave. They were now free from Egypt, but they were not free from either sin or the Lord. He had brought them out, and they became his possession. Further, anyone in Egypt could have left with Israel. That was their choice, and some accepted it, as the record tells. They left behind Egypt and headed towards Canaan. But on the way, they made several stops. The major one that the word deals with is the last verse of our passage today. It is the wilderness of Sinai. It was there that the law was received. And guess what? The people agreed to it with their own mouths several times. But by agreeing to the law, they did not obtain freedom. Rather, they went into another type of bondage. Because, as we have already heard, by the law is The knowledge of sin our text verse comes from John chapter 8 it's verses 34 through 36 Jesus answered them most assuredly I say to you whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever but a son abides forever therefore if the son makes you free you shall be free indeed Jesus is rather clear when a person commits sin he is a slave of sin Sin is a transgression of the law. And therefore, by accepting the law, the people brought themselves into the bondage of the law. They became slaves to it. This is explained by Paul in Romans and Galatians especially. When people today say we must observe the law of Moses, they don't obtain freedom. They cling to bondage and they bring about condemnation. It is Christ who frees us from the law so that we are not imputed sin Why would anyone want to go back under that slave master? In Galatians 4, Paul equates the son of Abraham's Egyptian bondwoman, Hagar, to the old covenant law of Moses, given at Mount Sinai. He equates Isaac, the son of promise, through Sarah, to the new covenant in Christ given in Jerusalem. And what does Paul then do? He cites scripture which says, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be Heir with the son of the free woman that's Galatians 4 verse 30 in essence he is saying cast out the law of Moses and cling to the new covenant in Christ but we must remember what Mr. Magnuson said the only freedom each of us possesses is the freedom to choose who or what we will be a slave to he's right you know so who is our slave master Paul explains it several ways But the one which really sums it up is found in Romans chapter 6. Here's what Paul says. And having been set free from sin, because we're not under law, right? You became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, As we follow the travels of Israel in Numbers chapter 33, I hope you will consider what they point to. Israel left one type of bondage and got themselves right into another, all seen in today's travels. And guess what? I read the book of Nehemiah this morning, and they made a confirmation of the covenant of the law of Moses. We swear by ourselves, the leaders and the priests and the Levites, they all stood up and did it. They reconfirmed this bondage to the law. They rejected what these things symbolically pointed to, And they continue in the same bondage today, speaking of Israel, that they came under 3,500 years ago. What a tragedy. Someday they will realize this and they will come to a new type of slavery, to that of righteousness and being slaves of God in Christ. Which do you prefer? One brings a curse and condemnation. One brings blessing and salvation, such as what we are to see starting in today's travels through the wilderness and towards the promised land it's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the day after the Passover. It's verses 1 through 4. Verse 1. These are the journeys of the children of Israel. Here we have a word not used since Numbers 10, Massah, or journey. It signifies a departure because of the pulling up of the pegs of a tent. It isn't simply leaving a tent to go on a journey, but the removal of the tent from one place to another. This breaking up of the camp and setting out has occurred many times in the past 38 years, and some of the locations were already noted. However, we are now to be given a complete list of them from Egypt right up until the border of Canaan, counting them as we go. That begins with the words that it was Israel, verse 1 continues, who went out of the land of Egypt. Egypt is the starting point. They were in the land of bondage and they were heading to their promised possession. Verse 1 continues, by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. The words are well translated. They were structured into armies or individual forces of fighting men and they were bayad or under the hand of Moses and Aaron. This means that they were under the direction or control of them. At first, they were led out of Egypt with a word which describes being in orderly ranks. It's Hamushim. Later at Sinai, they were divided into the more defined armies under individual banners and as men prepared for war. Before going on, one must look at the broader picture of what has happened, how it points to Israel, and how it points to each of us individually. God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. At the Passover no sooner had he brought them out than they started to complain he brought them to Sinai and gave them the law they failed at that time eventually they headed toward the land of promise and they failed every step of the way eventually being consigned to die in the wilderness and yet as a people God preserved Israel all the way to their promised inheritance as we saw all of that time of wilderness wandering and the things that happened picture Israel's rejection of Christ their time of punishment and yet God's faithfulness to his covenant promises preserving Israel until they will someday call on him and enter into the promised inheritance and Israel as a collective whole pictures our own individual salvation we are redeemed from Egypt our life of sin we continuously fail the Lord in this life turning from him sinning against him and failing to honor him and yet because of his faithfulness not ours He will never leave us, nor break his covenant with us. It was never up to Israel to obtain the inheritance, and it is not up to us to do so either. Despite failure, on our part, God will faithfully keep us until we receive the inheritance. The larger picture, both for collective Israel and for each of us individually, is that of assurance of salvation. It is a doctrine taught all the way through this narrative, from Exodus until entry. Consider this as the many stations are named. Israel was faithfully unfaithful through them, and yet the Lord was ever faithful to them. Verse 2. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. Here it speaks of the Motzahem Lemasehem, or the goings out of their departures. Of these it says that Moses wrote them down. But it also speaks of the mouth or command of the Lord. The question is is the command of the Lord speaking of the act of writing down the starting points or is it speaking of the act of departing which was at the command of the Lord the act of movement was certainly at the command of the Lord that was explicitly stated in numbers chapter 9 here's what it said there so it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days according to the command of the Lord they would remain encamped and according to the command of the Lord they would journey It can be inferred however that this is also speaking of the act of writing down the starting points simply because they are now recorded in the word it logically follows that the Lord expected Moses to keep this list due to its insertion here verse 2 going on and these are the journeys according to their starting points as in the previous clause the Hebrew signifies and these are the goings out of their departures This is probably more important than it sounds simply because there are irregularities between what has been recorded and what is recorded here. It is probable that the precision of wording is given to show that these are the main stops the Lord wanted recorded as an overall testimony to their travels. Of this record, the pulpit commentary says the following, The direct statement that Moses wrote this list himself is strongly corroborated by internal evidence. And has been accepted as substantially true by the most destructive critics no conceivable inducement could have existed to invent a list of marches which only partially corresponds with the historical account and can only with difficulty be reconciled with it a list which contains many names nowhere else occurring and having no associations for the later Israelites everybody get that there's no error in here And only an idiot would have taken and said, well, this is where we were, and then make a list here, and it doesn't match. And so people had to struggle to figure out what is the resolution between these. As I will tell you next week, Charles Ellicott gives a brilliant analysis of all of them, so they're reconciled. I'm not going to explain those to you. I'll just tell you that if you want to see that, go to Charles Ellicott's writings. It's way too long for a sermon, but it's a brilliant analysis of that. Verse 3, they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. It follows the account from Exodus 12:37, which said then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot about 600,000 men on foot besides children the name Ramses means son of the Sun or child of the Sun the 15th day of the first month coincides with the first day of the feast of unleavened bread that day is verse 3 continues on the day after the Passover The Passover was observed by Israel, and in that observance, none of the firstborn of Israel died. The Lord passed over the houses which had been marked with the blood of the Lamb. After that observance, which ended at sundown, the fifteenth day of the month began, and at some point the people gathered together in Ramses and departed Egypt. And, verse 3 continues, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. The words here correspond to what was said in Exodus 14 8 concerning the state of Israel and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt and he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. Verse 4 for the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had killed among them. The statement that they were burying their firstborn as Israel left is new to the narrative. However, It is a worthy addition to show the distinction between Israel and Egypt. While all of Israel was marching out in boldness, the Egyptians were busy burying their dead. The Lord had passed over the firstborn of Israel, but the Egyptians were consigned to burying their firstborn under their own feet. That was the final blow of the 10 plagues upon Egypt. Verse 4 continues, also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. This is what was promised in Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The meaning of these words is debated. As a review from Exodus 12, some think that the word gods can also mean princes, and so they say that this means that the nobles equally suffered in the plague. But that is obvious on the surface. Every household with the blood was exempted. Every other suffered. Others say that the term gods is explained by the firstborn of the people and the beasts. In other words, the firstborn of Pharaoh was considered the royal heir to the throne and thus he was a deity. And all of the beasts that were worshiped would have their firstborn killed as well. Thus the judgment is against all the gods of Egypt in this sense. One scholar changes the spelling of gods to habitations against all your habitations by reversing one letter in the Hebrew. Instead of Elohe or gods, it becomes Ale or habitations. But that is an unnecessary stretch. Another possibility is that as the Lord went through Egypt, he literally destroyed their idols, such as he would later do to the false god Dagon of the Philistines. And others take this statement as the individual plagues being judgments upon the individual gods of Egypt. In other words, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile, and so in turning the Nile into blood, it was a judgment upon that god. Each plague corresponds to one of the gods of Egypt. It is true Egypt worshipped the things that were plagued by the Lord, proving them impotent during their plagues. The Plague of Darkness was a plague which covered over their sun god, Ra. However, this is not what is being referred to here. First, the Nile still flows, and the sun is still in the sky. Secondly, the ten plagues did not exhaust all of the false gods of Egypt. They had innumerable gods. And thirdly, the promise was that judgment would be executed upon the gods at the time of the Passover. Nine of the plagues had already come to pass, so this is incorrect as well. What is being referred to here is that when the plague began, Pharaoh and all of Egypt would petition all of their false gods, but none of them would be able to save their firstborn. Thus, it would be a complete judgment on each and every god of Egypt in one fell swoop. They were entreated for mercy, but no mercy would come because they had no ears to hear and no power to stave off the plague. Because of this, the gods of Egypt were therefore judged as false gods. This then would be the same type of judgment as when the Lord accepted Elijah's offering upon that Mount Carmel. The God of the worshipers of Baal was judged to be a false god before the Lord, exactly as the people acknowledged after seeing the Lord's fire come down from heaven. This is the importance of repeating this thought once again, which was stated in Exodus chapter 12. It was a long time, 430 years, from Abraham until the exodus out of Egypt, the land. But when it came, there were certainly many cheers as the people beheld the marvel of the Lord's powerful hand. And for all generations thereafter, it came to be that people would each year on that night recall the marvel of the exodus and of the Lord's majesty, a Passover cedar each year at the nightfall. A solemn observance for the children of Israel a time to remember the great acts of the Lord a time to relate the story to the next generation as well to repeat this marvelous account recorded in his word our second thought today is from Ramses to the wilderness of Sinai it's verses 5 through 15 verse 5 then the children of Israel move from Ramses encamped at Sukkot this is now the fifth and final time that the name Ramses is seen in Scripture the first movement is from Ramses to Sukkot or tabernacles this was their first place of encampment after departing their place of bondage because of this first taste of freedom this is stated in Leviticus 23 in the instructions for the Feast of Tabernacles that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in Booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt I am the Lord your God the translation there and in pretty much every other version assumes the name of the feast is given based on the people living in temporary shelters it is true that they did but rather the feast is named because of that fact that the name of the place where they stayed was given which is Sukkot or tabernacles in Leviticus 23 the Hebrew says ki basukot hovo et et bene Yisrael for in Sukkot I made to dwell the sons of Israel. The name was given not so much because they dwelt in temporary booths after leaving Egypt, it was because they had left Egypt. Their first stop was named Sukkot. The stop was purposeful to make a theological point and a picture of our state before God. We are redeemed, but we continue to live in temporary bodies, awaiting our final glorified bodies. This is what is being pictured by leaving Ramses or Son of the Son and going to Sukkot or Tabernacles. In Malachi chapter 4, Christ is called the Son, S U N, of righteousness. We become sons of God through adoption because of the work of Christ. The Passover led the people to gather at Ramses for their departure. The people are now sons of the Son, meaning Christ. From there, they moved then to Sukkot, or tabernacles. The picture is that though redeemed, we continue on in these earthly bodies, or tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was given for this purpose. Go back and refresh your minds by watching those Leviticus 23 sermons again sometime. The picture is made. And so, verse 6, they departed from Sukkot and camped at Etam. This second movement is confirmed by Exodus 13, verse 20. So they took their journey from Sukkot and camped in Itam at the edge of the wilderness. We must now take a moment to review the meaning of the name Itam from Exodus 13. As I said then, scholars have attempted to define the name based on the meaning of the letters as they are structured, either from a Hebrew or an Egyptian context. None of them, however, attempted to connect the meaning to the text itself. But in doing that, the name seems likely. The name Sukkot was given to us for a reason Itam like Sukkot doesn't have to be the name of the place prior to their arrival but the name given to the place upon their arrival they went from Sukkot meaning tabernacles and its meaning was intended to show the state of Israel at the time now Itam is mentioned and it was for the same reason right after mentioning that Israel came to Etam this is then recorded Exodus 13 verses 21 and 22 and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people in that sermon we noted that Albert Barnes said fire and smoke signals were used by Greeks and Persians in their marches one ancient papyrus is said to call the commander of an Egyptian army aflame in the darkness ahead of his soldiers. As Barnes said, by this sign then, the pillar of cloud, the Lord showed himself as their leader and general. Israel was at the edge of the wilderness, camped and ready to move on, but there for the first time it mentions this new development. The term Lord, meaning Jehovah, was now reintroduced into the narrative instead of the word God, which was used so often, Elohim. It is with this marvelous description, the cloud and the pillar of fire, that he was at that time described. The introduction of the manifestation of the Lord is being tied to the name Itam. The word Ot, from which Itam is derived, means sign. And so Itam means their sign. Because it was what was being portrayed at the time he was their sign to move where to move and when to move he was their sign of comfort and reassurance he was their sign that he was with them as itam was pointing to the manifestation of the Lord and it means their sign then Paul's words in 1 Corinthians take on a much more meaningful sense here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 10 moreover brethren I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The people were baptized into the cloud as well as into the sea. Thus it was a sign to the people of the process of their redemption. As can be seen, this literal account prophetically pictures the work of the Lord Jesus on behalf of his people this is with all certainty because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it is Christ who led them in the wilderness verse 6 going on which is on the edge of the wilderness this statement is found in both Exodus 13 and here the wilderness means an uncultivated area not specifically a barren desert it is a place of God's grace and closeness to him but it is also a place of testing for some such as Israel the testing results in disobedience for others, such as when Christ was tested, it is a place of fellowship through obedience. The wilderness and the law seem to be closely connected because it is by law the testing is accomplished. All of this is beautifully expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here's what it says there. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers, then you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Mentioning that they were on the edge of the wilderness looks to the fact that they would be brought in, given the law, tested, given grace, and so forth. As we know, Looking back on later stops, this testing and time of punishment in the wilderness looks to the time of the testing and of punishment of Israel after the coming of Christ. That time for Israel has an end, which we have already come to in the book of Numbers, but it also has an end for the people who were exiled after rejecting Jesus Christ. Jeremiah speaks of that in Jeremiah 3. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. Although getting ahead with that thought, it is helpful to see how these stops are being used to show us truths about God's workings in and through redemptive history. Verse seven, they move from Etam and turn back to Pi Hahirot. The fourth movement is from Etam, or their sign, to Pi Hahirot. The word P means mouth, and ha-chirot means the gorges. It comes from the feminine plural of a noun which then comes from the word hor, which means a hole. Thus the picture is that they camped in the face of the mouth of the gorges. The name forms an exciting mental picture of what Israel faced. The Lord directed the children of Israel south with the Red Sea at their left to a place of encampment that has gorges facing them from the west. In other words, they were completely hemmed in. There was no way to escape to the east because of the sea or back to the north. Being on foot, if they had continued south along the Red Sea, it would have ended in futility as they would eventually run into more mountains and garrisons. They were literally hemmed in with their backs to the ocean. If only they could get through to the place on the other side. Verse 7 continues, which is east of Baal Ziphon. The translation is incorrect, they are on the finger of the Red Sea, facing east, therefore Baal Zephon is east, not west, of them. However, the Hebrew doesn't even say the word east, it says, Asher al pene Baal Zephon, or which against the face of Baal Zephon. This is not only a translational, but also a scholarly error, and it is unfortunately one followed by several translations. They were at pi which is west, not east of Baal Zephon, and they were facing Baal Zephon from across the waters of the Red Sea. Baal Zephon means either Lord of Darkness, Lord of the North, or Lord of the Watch. The third seems appropriate. The root for this word is Safa, which conveys the idea of being fully aware of a situation in order to gain some advantage or keep from being surprised by an enemy. It is exactly what the Lord was doing there. He was fully aware of the situation, and he certainly gained advantage of it. Further, he was in no way surprised by the coming enemy. In fact, he was merely awaiting for their arrival. Verse 7 continues, and they camped near Migdol. In Exodus 14, it said that they turned and camped before pi between Migdol and the sea. Here, it corresponds with that by saying they camped near Migdol. Migdol comes from the word gadol, which means to grow up or become great. Thus, Migdol means tower. The location for the encampment was between the sea and a place with a large natural or man-made tower. This would probably have been manned as an outpost, and word of their travels would have easily been dispatched from there back to Pharaoh. It seems intentional that Migdol was mentioned for this very purpose. It is meant to show that a report made it back to Pharaoh that this giant contingent of people had taken up camp on the shores of the Red Sea. We all know what happened, though. When the time of greatest stress and distress came upon the people, Moses declared to them in their trepidation, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more. Forever, the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Relief would come, and it would be the Lord who provided it. And when it came, it was directly to Baal Ziphon on the other side. Verse eight: They departed from before Hiriot and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. The fifth movement is from before Hiriot or gorges to Mara. Think of the symbolism: they were by a fortress they couldn't go in any direction and so it seemed as if they would be swallowed up in the gorges but on the other side from them was baalzephon lord of the watch nothing would swallow his treasured possession israel instead he led them through the midst of the sea into the wilderness a place of his grace and closeness to him but also a place of testing in this area they verse 8 continues went 3 days journey in the wilderness of Itam. in Exodus 15:22 it said so Moses brought Israel from the red sea then they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went 3 days in the wilderness and found no water what was called Shur is now called Itam. the changing of the name does not imply an error the names used are given based on the original name Shur first Shur was used to describe this place 3 times in Genesis here it is given based on what has happened they followed their sign in the wilderness, meaning the place of grace and testing, and so they called the place Itam. Here they were tested with no water. Verse 8 continues, and camped at Mara. Mara means bitter. The name was given based on the event. In Numbers 15 23, it said, Now when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Thus it was named because of the waters which were bitter and undrinkable. But as we saw, there was a small note of grace there. The name Mara is spelled with a he, or basically an H at the end of it. He is the fifth letter of the Hebrew Aleph Bet, five being the number of grace. It is the same letter that was added to Abraham and Sarah's name as a sign of covenant grace. However, in the book of Ruth, when Naomi asked to be called Mara, it is spelled without this he, this h. In calling herself Mara, without the H, she was proclaiming her bitterness, and it was as if she felt she was outside of the Lord's covenant provision, wallowing in her own bitterness. This letter H has the meaning of hook, reveal, or breath, and thus the story took on a greater meaning. A gift of grace was revealed, which took the people's breath away. The bitter waters were healed and made sweet, and from there, verse 9, they moved from Mara and came to Elim. At Elim there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there. In this verse, Sergio found an interesting acrostic. In the words, Elim Elim, Shetem, Esre Enot Mayim, Veshivim Temarim, Sham, or and at Elim, 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there. There is a forward-running acrostic of the first letter of those words. If you have your sermon that I gave you, it's on the last page. You can take a look at it. It is two words separated by the letter Ayin. Taking out that letter, it says, His death I will redeem. As the account of the waters of Mara pictured the cross of Christ, it is an amazing confirmation of his work. But another interesting thing is that the additional letter ayin, which is between the two words, means I. This verse speaks of the enot mayim, or the eyes of water, meaning springs of water. So that additional letter seems more purposeful to the acrostic than a failure of it. And when I was looking at it, I noticed that the last letter of the previous word esrei, or the first letter of the word before the Sray is also an Ayin. So if you look at the one, two, three, fourth letter down, S-ray, it begins with an Ayin. The next letter that added Ayin is there, and the word after that is the word Mayim. Okay. So it says in the acrostic, "Note Mayim." Two Ayins means eyes of water, and note Mayim or eyes of water. So there's in addition to the acrostic, there's another. Addition which when I showed that to Sergio he flipped he couldn't believe it. He thought there's just a nine there I said well that means I and he's like oh, that's cool And I said there's another I right before it which means eyes of water so Wonderful stuff there, isn't it? (laughs) I mean you saw in the book of Esther those acrostics These are not fudging with the Bible by the way an acrostic is just taking the literal text and finding what it says And he has to run a computer program to do this, but it's not like a Bible code (laughs) where you make stuff up This is actually clear text if you had the time, you'd be able to find them. The ancient scholars found the name Jehovah or Yahweh how many four times in the book of Esther because it's a short acrostic and eventually you can find them. You get the longer ones and it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a computer to do it. But that is a rather astonishing acrostic right there. It's an interesting curiosity. Next, the sixth movement is from Mara to Elim. This is confirmed by Exodus 15, 27. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. The name Elim comes from a root which indicates to protrude or stick out, such as a porch on a house or a ram in a flock or a large tree. Therefore, we can call it the protruders. There at Elim, the Bible records 12 wells, the words in Hebrew say, and not my eyes of water, which is exactly what I just showed you in that acrostic. And so these are springs as noted here, but not really wells as was translated back in Exodus. There are also 70 palm trees. The word is temarim, which is the plural of Tamar, the same name as the daughter of Judah who bore his child. The name pictures an upright or righteous person, if you remember that wonderful story from Genesis chapter 38, marvelous pictures of Christ there. At this location, it is said that the people camped there by the wells. As we saw in Exodus 15, and which must be repeated again now because the Lord repeats it here in Numbers, there is great specificity in the description, 12 springs and 70 palm trees. As we saw, it was given to make a marvelous picture for us. Christ is the water of life. It is he who made the bitter waters Mara sweet through his death on the cross. The story continued at Elim, where there were 12 springs. They pictured those who sent out the word of the water of life to the people. In Matthew 10, the apostles were given the power to heal, just as the Lord said that he would be Yehovah Rophecha, or the Lord who heals, in the previous verse of Exodus chapter 15. And when he had called, this is Matthew chapter 10, the 12 apostles, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. The 70 palms represented the 70 disciples or righteous ones chosen by Christ in Luke 10 to follow suit. After these things, Luke 10 says, the Lord appointed 70 others. So you have the 12 springs and then you have the 70 palm trees and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Again, like the apostles, they were given the power to heal by Jehovah Ropheha, the Lord Jesus. The name Elim pictures the work of Christ, which protrudes out for all to see through these apostles and disciples who spread the message to and throughout Israel. The movement of Israel made a picture of the Lord and his ministry to the people of Israel. It was a ministry which was intended for the healing of the people through the message of the 12 apostles and the 70 commissioned disciples if they would but pay heed to him and to his words. Verse 10, they move from Elim and camp by the Red Sea. This is the seventh movement from Alim or the protruders. They then camped by the Red Sea or Yam Suf, the sea of the ending. This stop is not recorded in Exodus as it obviously lacked any Christological significance in the ongoing narrative that we followed. However, it is recorded here as an actual stop. The word Yam means sea. Suf comes from the verb Suf, which means to come to an end or cease this sea is where the land of Israel ends and it is from Israel that the reference point is given this stop makes a picture of the protruders meaning the 12 and the 70 carrying the message to the end of the land Everybody seeing the symbolism that's why it's recorded here but it wasn't recorded before verse 11 they moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of sin this is the eighth movement from the sea of the ending they come to the wilderness of sin meaning thorn all of the contents of Exodus sixteen occurred at this place, which in particular details the giving of the manna and the introduction of the Sabbath as a statute for Israel. Both of those pictured in great detail the person and work of Christ. If the stop at Elim pictured the words of the apostles and disciples, and the Red Sea pictured the word concerning Messiah going to the end of the land of Israel, and Sinai is for the giving of the law, meaning the covenant then coming to the wilderness of sin is given as a precursor to that the manna and the Sabbath point to Christ we saw that very clearly our bread and our rest grace and also testing is found in the wilderness of sin or the thorn will Israel respond and pay heed first the law is given and only then comes the new covenant verse 12 they journeyed from the wilderness of sin and camped at both this is the ninth movement it is not recorded in the Exodus account. Dofka comes from the verb fuck, to beat, knock, or press severely. It is used just three times in Scripture. Once it refers to pressing animals too hard so that they could die. One to pounding on a door, and one to simply knocking on a door. One can see the coming passion of Jesus Christ in this. There is the anticipation of the bread and the rest which were provided by Christ's death. Likewise, the events which led to his death involved his being beaten and driven to the point of exhaustion. See this? He's given the message to Israel. It's gone out through Israel, and then they decide they don't want the message. So they beat him. Verse 13 they departed from Dofka and camped at Alush. This is the 10th movement. It is also not recorded in the Exodus account. Alush isn't even translated by most people, but two sources give the meaning as mingling together or a crowd of men. One can see in this the crowd which gathered before Pilate and who then gathered at the cross of Jesus. And from that act, the judgment and crucifixion of the Lord, Israel moves again to reveal the picture. Verse 14, they move from Elush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. This is the 11th movement. Rephidim is a plural noun which comes from the verb Raphad, which means to spread, as in a bed. And so by implication, it means to refresh or comfort it also carries the sense of support at this place where there was no water but water was brought forth from the rock by striking it remember that the picture was that of Christ being struck in order to bring forth the water of life Christ the rock was struck and from him the waters in fact poured forth each stop has anticipated what would occur up until the time Christ died in the death of Christ A new covenant was brought forth verse 15 finishes with they departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai this is the 12th movement Sinai was where the law of Moses was given but that was anticipatory of the giving of the new covenant in Christ it was his cross seen in the granting of the new covenant which the time at Sinai pictured everything which occurred at this spot and that includes all of the book of what Uh, Leviticus a lot of the you know the construction of the tabernacle everything Exodus Leviticus and even in numbers everything that occurred at this spot over the next many months was typologically representative of Christ every detail of the sanctuary the priesthood the sacrifices even the arrangement and structure of the camp looked to Christ in his work if you have not studied that if you haven't heard those sermons go back and you will be amazed every single word from The landing at the Mount Sinai in the construction of the tabernacle, every word of every sacrifice, this type of fat, the salt, everything points to Christ, every word of it. It was all there to prefigure him. And amazingly, as this is the 12th stop and 12 represents perfection of government, we see at Sinai the perfection of God's government revealed in Christ in astonishing detail that is what is being detailed in all of that construction of the tabernacle and of the Levitical law and everything else it's all picturing Christ government all of that detail goes from Exodus 19 verse 2 until the departure of Israel towards Canaan in numbers 10 verse 11 and yet of all of that detail nothing is stated here the next verse that we will look at next week will simply state that Israel leaves this spot And heads to its first stop on the way to Canaan the details have been given already in type they look forward to what Christ accomplished Israel has a choice to make will they accept him and his work and enter into their promised rest or will they reject him and go into exile and punishment history bears out that they rejected the Lord in the wilderness and they rejected the Lord when he came The stops will continue to be recorded, bringing us right up to where we are now in both the biblical narrative and also surprisingly in the course of Israel's history as well. Right where we are in the book of Numbers after we finish this review of the stops is exactly where Israel is in human history right now from the pictures that were made in the book of Numbers. They are exactly there right now. It is that astonishing to me. It is rather amazing that we can be here evaluating the word line by line and have seen how it so closely mirrors where we are in human history in relation to Israel. The record of the stops is a snapshot of Israel's history from being redeemed from Egypt all the way through until the time they are about to enter into their long-missed rest. And the center and focus of the entire record is that God entered into the stream of humanity and gave us hints of what he would do and what he continues to do in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Isn't that astonishing what's going on? These pictures that are in there, every single detail. God is trying to wake up, guess what? Not just the people of the world, but especially his people, Israel, who rejected him. Now this week, I'm going to go talk to a Jewish friend of mine. We go out and have breakfast from time to time. We've been close ever since a Jewish friend of mine that was in high school was killed down at Bentley's. He was there in line, and somebody came up and shot him in the head and killed him. And so we were supposed to have our 30th graduation ceremony there at Bentley's, and we canceled that, and they went somewhere else. But they killed him, and I met this man. Because of that, and I've been a friend of his since then, and i watched his son grow up, and I went to his bar mitzvah, and I told him about Jesus. Well, guess what? I'm going to visit him this week because he has cancer. And we emailed back and forth yesterday, and I did tell him about Jesus, and I said, if you allow me to one time, I won't bother you again. That's my commitment to people. Just let me get my foot in the door. Well, I bet you he will want to talk about Jesus when I see him. And if not, that's fine. But this is what this is picturing is the life of Christ all the way through we've been redeemed out of Egypt and yet we have a choice to make in the person of Jesus Christ all of that was given to Israel and guess what they rejected him they went into that wilderness wandering for 38 years and we saw every single thing that happened in there everything pointed to their relationship with Christ they rejected him and yet he remained faithful to them and that is simply as I said at the beginning of this sermon a picture of you and I He's redeemed us, we have accepted him, and yet we continue to screw up and reject him, but he is ever faithful to his unfaithful people. Individual Jews may or may not be saved, that's their choice, but collective Israel is a picture of you and I. God made a covenant with them and he will never break that covenant. That is his covenant with Israel and it must stand or it's not the God of the universe. But he's also made a covenant with each one of you who have received Jesus. And if you haven't received Jesus, if you haven't just simply said, I want Jesus. I'm messed up and I need to be fixed. If you haven't done that, please do it today because that is the message that we're seeing in this passage today. It is the message of redemption, of grace in the wilderness, and fellowship with God restored if you will receive what these things picture. And we know they're true because Christ hung on a literal cross 1,500 years after the story came about. God told them in advance, in type and shadow, what he was going to do, and they did it to him Because he allowed it to happen to himself. He stepped out of the infinite realm. The God of creation loves you and he loves Israel that much. I don't support Israel because they're right with God. I talked about that in Prophecy Update today. They're not. I support Israel because God made a covenant with them and we are obligated to hold to that and be faithful to that. So please, get your theology straight. Support Israel despite themselves because God is doing it too. He's doing it with you as well. I got a closing verse here for you from Isaiah 42 it's verse 9 behold the former things have come to pass and new things I declare before they spring forth I tell you of them sometimes he does it in types and shadows sometimes he does it explicitly but he tells us in advance what is coming and then all we need to do is read this word and search it out and there is the answer the answer of glory the answer of redemption what is that story there for Who cares if it has 12 springs and 70 palm trees? Why didn't you say 69? Because he was going to appoint 70 disciples, not 69 disciples. Everything points to something. Next week is Numbers 33, 16 through 49. This is what we are going to do. Doing all of these verses at once, we will give it a stab. It's entitled, The Journeys of Israel. Part 2. From Sinai to the Plains of Moab. That'll be our 65th number sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, and he's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I'm going to tell you about the Lord taking care of his people. I don't have permission to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it was such a beautiful story. We were at the projects yesterday and I was there Chris was at her car fiddling around and and uh, what's his name uh, Tom was over at his truck fiddling around and there's Steve blazing who's visiting from Indiana and me talking and this girl about this tall walks up and she says she's got a cell phone in her hand she says I need to borrow a cell phone and I can't believe knowing what I look like that she would even walk up to us but she walked up. And she says I need a cell phone mine isn't working something okay So what happens? We get her a cell phone and she calls and there's this place off to the side of the projects where they have a community, where they raise vegetables and and all kinds of stuff, okay? And she was told to go there and meet the people there. Well, they canceled it because it was uh, raining. So they canceled it and she never got word. Here's this girl, this big. She's from another country. Her English is good, but not great. And she was, I've never seen a person so terrified in my life. And when she got onto that phone, she literally, it was like turning on waterworks. It was, it was, she was literally horrified because she's in the worst part of Sarasota. The worst part. I mean, we've seen people killed right there on the corner where we turn. We had one guy hacked to death on Saturday night and we're there Sunday morning. We've seen people that we've talked with the next day just back from the hospital with bullet holes through their arms. It happens a lot. And there she is all by herself, little girl from Singapore. I said, oh, you're from Singapore. I lived in KL for three years. And so she started to calm down a little bit. Still crying. But finally, Chris said, I'll take you to where you need to go, which was, believe it or not, this big. I thought she's 10. She's a freshman at the arts college right there, Ringling Art College. Yeah. But she couldn't walk there. I mean, I'm telling you, that's a long walk, and it's not a good place to be walking, right? So I sat down with her for a second before she got pulled away, and I said, you know, we're all like sheep. We all get lost. I said, but there's somebody that will take care of you through this. And she said, I'm already a Christian. I was, oh, saves me the effort. But guess what? She said, I was just praying for help. (gasps) Isn't that amazing? I mean, the Lord, you were talking about being lost in a wilderness. And she was in a little bit of a wilderness. And she was willing to walk up to a guy that looked like me. (laughs) Probably because Steve Blazing looks like a normal guy. But she was literally terrified. What a sweet young lady she was. Thank you for taking her, Chris. That was wonderful. Anyway, I've got uh, a question to ask you before we... Okay. Um, This is going to be kind of hard, but I have said it in this church before. If you can guess this, then you'll get a Maserati okay how many apostles by appointment are there and I'll make it easy on you how many sons of Israel reckoned to Jacob are there come on think it through who said that what somebody said something what'd you say no that's not right I, I thought I heard somebody say 14 There's 14 apostles, the 12 original, one of them hung himself, Matthias was uh, appointed, and then Christ appointed Paul, 14. And guess what? There are 12 sons of Israel, but two more were reckoned as his own sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, 14 and 14. The patterns go all the way through the Bible. It's a marvelous thing, but nobody gets a Maserati this week. I'm sorry. Okay, got a poem and we're done. The Journeys of Israel from Egypt to Sinai. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went from out of Egypt the land by their armies under Moses' hand and Aaron's hand. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting points as Moses did record. They departed from Ramses in the first month, on the fifteenth day of the first month, as was ending the night. On the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in all the Egyptian sight. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom had killed among them the Lord. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments, all in accord with his word. Then the children of Israel moved from Ramses and camped at Sukkot, as the word does address. They departed from Sukkot and camped at Etam, which is on the edge of the wilderness." They moved from Itam and turned back to p which is east of Baal-Ziphon, and they camped near Migdal, as to us the record makes known. They departed from before Hahirot and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness, went three days' journey into the wilderness of Itam and camped at Mara, so the account does address. They moved from Mara and came to Aleem. At Elim were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there. There they found rest and ease. They moved from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. They moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dovka. They departed from Dovka and camped at Elush. At Elush, they temporarily settled in. They moved from Elush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. They departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. Of the coming marvels there, who could possibly think? Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Mabel, did you like it? She was all excited about this passage, and I'm, she said, I want to know what it's there for. Is it okay? Did it go okay today? It Praise God. Heavenly Father? Me, Charlie. Good. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the many blessings of this life, and we thank you for this precious word how those things point to what Christ did, how he was beaten, how he stood among a crowd of men, and then he was struck on the cross of Calvary, releasing the water of life for any who will but come. It's just unbelievable how you tuck these things away in your word and how they stay hidden there until they're searched out. We thank you for that. We thank you for the wonderful marvels and mysteries of this precious superior word. Then Lord, you know, the people on Thursday we mentioned and the people we mentioned today that are also suffering with their own troubles and trials and difficulties and also one with the birthday in the week ahead. And we want to lift all of them up to you for your attention, Lord, that you will be with them through their trials and during their happy times and that you'll be glorified through their lives. We pray this, that you will be glorified, Lord, because you're infinitely worthy of it, and we pray it in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.